I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. Welcome to Disaster Month. All November long, we are taking a look at some of the greatest disaster movies that are owned by the Walt Disney Company. <laughs> Which turns out to be quite a few of them, we found out. Especially since the acquisition of uh, 20th Century Studios. Yeah. This week, we are starting it out with the 1972 classic, The Poseidon Adventure. Of course, the Poseidon Adventure was based on the great Pokemon episode, Battle on the St. Anne. But five <laughs> people are going to get that. <laughs> no, of course, it was based off the novel of the same name. You, but again, if you're young enough, that's probably how you know the story is by watching it on Pokemon. Uh, I am old enough to have known it from watching this film. <laughs> I did not know there was a Pokemon episode until you just said that thing that you just said right now. So yeah, imagine this, but with Pokemon. So that, that they, sounds awful. <laughs> they, I mean, it, it it was only two episodes, so they got out a lot quicker than the people in this movie did. And because it's a kids' cartoon, no one died. That 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 sounds truly. Truly, truly bad. <laughs> uh, it's just yeah. the Poseidon adventure, except Pika, 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 Pikachu. I mean, the Poseidon adventure as a kid's movie in general. I mean, it, it, it kind of reminds me of that old SNL skit where they tried to do Titanic as a Disney movie. Uh, well, I have seen the kid's movie version of Titanic. And with, the with the rapping dog? Yeah. Actually, there's more than one kids movie version of the Titanic disaster, and that that is really sad that you can say that. Um, but yeah, the fact that Pokemon did wow, that's you've you've hurt my brain. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> The, but this also has the trademark of a lot of these kind of movies where they just pack this movie in with as many stars as possible. Like, it really isn't the story. It really isn't the, the, the effects. It's the fact that you have all of these people, all of these celebrities, named celebrities in one place at one time. For modern comparison, the most recent remake of uh, Murder on the Orient Express will be similar. Because it's not about the story or the spectacle. It's about, hey, we have every popular actor in Hollywood in one movie. Isn't it awesome? Well, I will say that 
Poseidon Adventure is not the first of the genre. Um, Airport beat it um, in 1970. And Airport also, that was the selling point. It was, look at all of this cluster of stars that we have in this thing. And it was also based on a novel. Um, so when they uh, made Poseidon Adventure, they went with a similar thing. Uh, because bless dear Irwin Allen here, uh, that was the kind of man he was. He knew a gimmick when he saw it, um, and he he saw Airport and went, let's do that, but with a different novel. Um, and Irwin Allen, this was his first foray into anything like th this kind of genre. Um, he was previously known as the sci-fi guy. <laughs> um, if you're a sci-fi fan, you probably knew him for being the guy who created Lost in Space or the Time Tunnel, uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Uh, he did uh, Land of the Giants, I think. Uh, so, yeah. He was that guy. He was the guy who created the schlocky sci-fi TV shows. Right? And now he's doing disaster films. And boy, did he hit it big with those. Because this was the highest grossing movie of the year and it was also one of the most nominated films of all time uh when it came it came out you know um it got eight oscar nominations one for best original song for the song the morning after which it won there's got to be a morning after if we can hold on through the night. I, I gotta say, that that song is, uh, I don't know if it's, a, if it's possible for a song that goes that mild to be a banger, but yeah, it kind of is. That's a song that will get stuck in your head. There's gotta be a morning after. It yeah. does it. Cause it because it, it's played so many times in the film. Actually, you here's the thing about that song. It gets stuck in your head so much that you're like, that song is just constantly in that movie. But it's not. It's actually only played twice in the movie. Hmm. It feels like it's more than that. But though. it feels like it's always in the movie. I mean, the I score, think I think I think it's because it's tied into the score. Yeah, the the score was written by John Williams. Star That's Wars. That's how John hard Williams. this movie goes. Okay, the score is written by John Williams. 
Uh, and it's orchestrated by Alexander Courage. So if you're like a, a film score nut, you're immediately going like a John Williams and Alexander Courage collaboration. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so there's your, your music nut uh, kind of heaven there. But they... John Williams worked that song kind of into and rather subtly at points into it. So you do think that the song is used more often than it is, but it's only sung twice, which is earlier in the movie, it's you see. The um, band practicing. The yeah. band practicing the song. And then it is sung again during the big New Year's Eve dinner when everybody is in the dining hall on the ship. That is the only two times you hear the song. You would think they would play it at the end, like, oh, you know, now there's a morning after. But nope, not at all. That's the only two times you actually hear the song, and you never hear it in full in the movie. But it did become a huge hit for Maureen McGovern. And so if you were alive during the the time this film was a big hit, that was on the radio all the time. And then it just became part of the culture after that and now it's the sort of kitschy song of oh crap things are about to go wrong because this song plays right before everything goes wrong yeah and so if you if you need a song in the background of a movie to kind of suggest like something's not right here because it's oh. such a upbeat song. Hey, it's going to, you know, no matter what things go wrong, it's going to be good because the morning then and then and, and disaster. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of horror films now actually will use this song to play in the background as a suggestion of crap is about to go south. So if you are really good at listening to the backgrounds of movies, um, you will sometimes hear this playing in the background of horror movies or thriller movies. And, you know, it, it will come on the radio or especially in movies that are set in the 70s or 80s. Uh, it will sometimes be playing on the radio in the background right before the scene turns tense <laughs> and the killer shows up. <laughs> as a little nod to the audience of like don't get too comfortable stuff's about to go down um and they also used it if you are a south park fan you will remember the the song because there's an episode where a succubus starts preying on the town uh and becomes a chef's girlfriend and she seduces him with this song. And the boys discover that the only way to send her back is to sing the song backwards. Uh, so it's a it's one of the earlier seasons of, of South Park. That'd be about Tree City. 
<laughs> so yeah um but yeah it's it's kind of a, an interesting uh journey the song has had and it it did win the oscar and interestingly it beat out a song that maybe it shouldn't have beat out we always talk about things that things winning the oscar that may maybe shouldn't have i don't know but the, the one of the other songs that it was against uh the other songs most of the songs it was against have kind of faded into obscurity but the other song on the list that is still remembered is ben we don't need to look no more. <laughs> um, which young is, Michael Jackson. Yeah, it's young Michael Jackson, and it's from a really creepy movie about a rat. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, yeah. So I don't know between, I mean, we can have a real serious movie song debate about which which song is better between The Morning After or Ben as far as, unsettling sweet little songs that uh that that make you feel like oh no crap is about to go down in this movie but i don't know that's that's a pretty tough race there between the morning after and ben i don't know crispin glover singing that in that one movie he did was kind of creepy well yeah i mean they eventually redid uh willard slash ben uh with crispin glover and crispin glover sang that song uh did a remake of that song and it ended up way creepier so i i don't know um but yeah it was kind of interesting that the that the race for the oscar that year was between the morning after and ben uh so I don't know. A uh, very interesting Oscar Oscar race that year for best song. Uh but yeah, it it's it's an interesting film uh in the making of it um and parts of it were filmed aboard a ship called the Queen Mary hmm. which was a uh, originally a British uh, liner uh, that was used uh, on the Atlantic uh, to go back and forth between um, England and America. And the interesting thing about the Queen Mary is that it is the ship that my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, returned to America on after his service in World War II. Oh. Mm. Um, and it is also, um, as we are recording this, we are just a few days out um, from it being uh, the ship I was on my way to see. Because it is currently permanently docked now in California. Hmm. And I was recently on a trip to California as of uh, just the, the week before we're uh, recording this. And I was driving on my way to visit this ship because it is part of my family history. 
and uh, the car I was in got rear-ended as I was on my way to see this ship. And so I was never able to go see this ship. I believe there's a funny story involving that ship that Disney almost bought that area and turned it into another theme park. When they bought the Disneyland Hotel from its original owner, they got the rights to the Queen to the Queen Mary. They were going to build a theme park around it called Disney Sea. It never happened. But the name Disney Sea still exists as Tokyo Disney Sea. So there you go. Yeah. Um, eventually, uh, the ship was uh, sold and is now, I think, owned um, by the state of California or something, I think. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was for a time owned by the Disney Corporation. It almost um, became a theme park. Yeah, it almost became a, a theme park. Um, but yeah, so um, it was uh, parts of the ship were used for the, the filming of, of this uh, movie. Um, but the uh, the interesting thing is the reason why the, the ship was used um was that the original novel had been inspired because the author had been aboard the Queen Mary on vacation in the 30s when a storm had come up and caused a bunch of uh waves to rock the ship pretty violently and it was that experience that made him think, eh, what if we had had some horrible disaster while aboard the Queen Mary? And so when they made the movie, they were like, well, you know, the Queen Mary is just kind of sitting out there <laughs> in California. Why don't we just film on the ship that originally inspired the book? And you mentioned that this was a financial success. It was one of the most popular. It was the most. It was the highest grossing movie of the year, but critics hated it because while the average moviegoer was enthralled by the spectacle of all of these celebrities together in one movie, the critics ripped it apart because of its story and such. I guess they were not as easily amused. That's why they're critics, I assume. Ebert. Uh did not like it he he said that it's the type of movie that you know is going to be awful but you go to see it anyway <laughs> the uh siskel seemed to like it better he he said it was uh technically excellent and he liked that the stars did their own stunts um so um the the guy that wrote for the Washington Post at the time uh called it formula hokum <laughs> which is always it, it hokum is a word you don't you don't hear used often enough I don't think um 
but uh it was it was one of those that the critics did say that they were that they liked the effects you know it's it's one of the sometimes you get that that movie where critics are like well you know it's very technically well done but you know you don't Avatar. Really expect <laughs> a lot of <laughs> yeah but you don't really expect a lot from the story you know so but for 1972 these aren't such bad effects and some of them still hold up yeah i mean well it's also because they they didn't really have computer effects or, or anything to fall back on i mean this was very early on in digital effects um so and Irwin Allen was not the type of man to use a digital effect. Let's just say this is the man who was very much from the uh, throw a guy in a rubber suit and have him stomp around a set kind of school of, of filmmaking. Um, and he was very well known for you do it on the cheapest budget possible. Mm. Uh, so that was, that was his style of, of filmmaking. He was known to stretch a penny for as, as much as he could get out of it. Uh, if you watched a lot of his old television shows, you would start to go like, wait, I've seen that rubber costume on... You know, you'd see the same costume in the time tunnel and then you'd tune in the next week and you'd see it on Lost in Space and then you'd tune in the next week and you'd see it, you know. Um, I thought the BBC was cheap. Oh, no, no. The BBC was extravagant compared to an Irwin Allen production. <laughs> so uh, it was... You know, he he was known for if somebody would complain on one of his film sets, he'd be like, oh, yeah, we can replace you. I don't care if you're the star of the show. Actors are cheap. We'll find somebody to do it <laughs> for you. You know, it's uh, you you were never you were never safe on his show if you cost him money. It was there was no negotiating with him. He'd be like, no, I'll fire you and find somebody who'll do it for half the price. Let's, uh, since you mentioned the cast, let's kind of get into this all-star cast. Our, I guess you call him our main character, Gene Hackman, as Reverend Scott. He's Gene Hackman. I don't know how you, I can tell you who Gene Hackman is. We have talked about him before because he had that one cameo appearance in Young Frankenstein when we talked about that. But he's Gene Hackman. He, yeah, he's a legend. Yeah. And one of the best Lex Luthers of all time. Come on. You, you know. I mean, the other guy is animated. <laughs> <laughs> one of the two best Lex Luthers and one's animated. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Red Buttons, another legendary comic. We And Shelley Winters, who we both talked about when we talked about Pete's Dragon. Yeah, both both of them were, were in Pete's Dragon and we, we talked about uh, them there. Um, Shelley Winters did get an Oscar nomination for this, and it's arguable whether or not she should have should have won for it. I mean, you know, Shelley Winters, of course, already um, 
won two Oscars prior to this um, for her work in Diary of Anne Frank and A Patch of Blue. Um, and she had she had already received another nomination for Place in the Sun uh, prior to this. Um, but this this role always kind of gets to me because this is this was in the middle of a bit of a comeback for her um because she had had a bit of a career slump and then she had done uh Kubrick's uh version of Lolita and then she had done Alfie with Michael Caine in the in 60s and then this kicked off another kind of bit of a career resurgence for her uh when she when she did Poseidon Adventure so uh it was it was pretty pretty interesting um one of my favorite things about Shelley Winters is that it kind of later on in her career uh she was asked to go to an audition and at that point in her career she had made it past the point where most actors are asked to audition <laughs> um and they they said please come to the audition and please bring your resume and your headshot and she walked in with a giant carpet bag and uh she walked up to the casting director and she reached inside the carpet bag and she pulled out an Oscar and she set it on the table and she said, there's my resume. And she reached into the carpet bag and she pulled out her other Oscar and she slammed it down on the table and she said, and there's my effing headshot. <laughs> Bad ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently Shelley Winters was not a woman to be messed with. <laughs> Ernest Borgnine. Another legend. McHale's Navy if you're an old school TV buff. But he's done so much more than that. Yeah, I mean, he started doing a a lot of uh I mean, for people of our generation, hmm. Of course, you know, he, he started doing a lot of uh, voice acting voice yeah. acting, and, and He's stuff. He's Mermaid when, Man in Spongebob, or was before his passing. Yeah, and, and of course he he did uh, 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 some Simpsons. Uh, oh, yeah. Playing there. himself. Uh, pl yeah, playing himself. And uh, then, of course, he was in All Dogs Go to Heaven. Um, as well, um, but did a lot of uh, television appearances when we were kids. I mean, he was on almost every uh, TV show uh, back when we were kids. You know, did did his murder she wrote appearances and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if you remember his uh 
his pinky in the brain that that he did um but that kind of sticks out in my mind along with the the simpsons um and of course i grew up on nick at night so uh when he showed up on get smart as well um it always sticks out for for me he had a massive film career before that of course we're just 80s kids you know 80s and 90s kids so that's that's what sticks out to us but you know he um he gets in things like you know ice station zebra and then of course he was in the the movie version of Mikhail's navy and and stuff like that so jack albertson grandpa joe and in willy wonka if you know him for one role you know him for that uh again classic tv buff chico and the man yeah um but of course he had a uh amazing um film career you you would see him in just tons of stuff so you know he's in things like the shaggy dog and um there's your disney connection yeah and uh then he uh it shows up um in his his final film role was actually another uh disney uh film which he did a voice in fox and the hound oh um so you know um he he shows up uh periodically through throughout uh disney uh up until his his death so uh yeah Rodney McDowell, another legend. We talked about him very briefly when we talked about bed noms and broomstick because 90% of his role was cut from the theatrical cut. But he was also in A Bug's Life and a, the, the Black Hole for Disney. It's just, and so much more. Yeah, I mean, he also did That Darn Cat for Disney. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, I think... So many people remember him from the Planet of the Apes films. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a huge Planet of the Apes fan, so um, he gets you know he plays uh, Cornelius and Caesar, you know, in the the original film series. Um, but yeah, I mean, he had such an incredible uh, film career that i mean we'd be here all day talking about yeah all of those stella stevens nutty professor girls 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 the courtship of eddie's father and tv shows alfred hitchcock newhart murder she wrote love boat bonanza she's did she's done everything and been everywhere (laughs) yeah um so I, i you know i i remember her as a kid because she would show up on all of the the shows i would i would watch in the 90s you know because she would show up on like the highlander tv show and uh, 
one that I used to watch called Silk Stockings, which was mm. such a crappy, weird late night TV show. Which it all works because she's because Silk Stockings and her role in this movie as a as a as a as a former escort and you know her career in adult magazines prior to being a a, a film star. Yeah, so it kind of all goes together. Carol Linney, she sang this song "Morning After." Well, uh, she didn't. She was dubbed over in the film, but really, she, she gets to lip sync it. Yeah. Um... She she was uh the the uh actual performance in the film was uh Renee Armand. So she dubs over but uh Carol Lindley uh gets to uh lip sync it <laughs> in the film. She's pretty much known for this movie, uh another movie she did called Blue Denim. She's done stuff, but after this movie her career kind of uh stops. Not that she didn't stop working, it's just there are not a lot of memorable roles, unfortunately. <laughs> interestingly, yeah, interestingly though, her her film career did start out with Disney. She started uh, in a movie done for Disney called "The Light in the Forest," which was when Disney was still trying to do historical dramas you know back during the the 50s and they were trying to do those uh you know american they, history as told by disney you know i mean so, that was just what walt was into at the time yep so that that was her her first film role um but yeah after after she had a, a pretty good career kind of going it looked like it was gonna be going on the up and up she even had uh one movie where she played gene harlow and uh that had a lot of buzz around it and then it totally tanked when it hit the box office um and then she was having a pretty good run uh in the late 60s and going into the the 70s and Poseidon Adventure was the biggest movie of the year and then something happened and she she just couldn't keep that that going unfortunately and then she did a lot of TV and yeah there's always one and look at any big blockbuster movie there's always one actor that careers never succeed from it and unfortunately for this movie it's Carol it's it's Carol Linney. Lindley. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. And uh, I guess last but not least, Leslie Nielsen as the captain. This is before he be- got famous as a comedic actor. This is when he was still a serious actor. And if you only know Leslie Nielsen from, like, Airplane and The Naked Gun, this is a culture shock because he's an actual serious actor. Well, yeah, up until he did um airplane i th- I think was the the big one um that kind of broke that for him uh that kind of he... a creep show was creep show creep... before airplane creep show was after airplane. Okay, well, yeah, I th- I think airplane was the the thing that that 
broke it for him. And interestingly, airplane being the parody of airport. <laughs> yeah. Um, but up until airplane, Leslie Nielsen was the big dramatic actor. That was what he was known for. So Leslie Nielsen being in this movie was meant to give it gravitas because he's one of the first people we see on screen. And so it's meant to be, look, here is big dramatic actor Leslie Nielsen. You are watching big dramatic movie. Take this seriously. And it's kind of interesting watching it from a modern perspective because you see Leslie Nielsen on film and to a modern audience now looking back at this movie, it's like, oh, Leslie Nielsen, this is going to be a laugh riot, especially since it's a disaster movie. And if you've seen him in Airplane, you're going to be like, oh, I know what kind of movie this is. But to an audience watching in 1972, they would have gone, oh, Leslie Nielsen. This is going to be serious drama. So it's kind of fascinating how it hits to us now versus how it would have hit to an audience in 1972. Mm. Um, Because it's it's entirely the opposite effect now. Um, Because that's why they cast Leslie Nielsen in Airplane. Because they wanted it to... To give it credibility? To get, yeah, they wanted to have that thing of like, oh, Leslie Nielsen is in this. And then all of a sudden you see Leslie Nielsen doing the parody of the character he's basically playing in Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> Which is, you know. Um, so it, it it is a better joke then. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... The Poseidon Adventure, it's a cruise ship. These people are going to different destinations. And the disaster part comes, as usually is, by not listening to the smartest man in the room, which in this case would be Leslie Nielsen, as he is the captain of the ship. Because then you have the people, that the, the guy that represents the owners of the ship saying, hey... We're behind schedule. You got to plow through. Everything else be damned. Ship ship integrity be damned. Weather be damned. We have a schedule to keep and you are going. I'm not asking you to go full steam ahead. I'm telling you to go full steam ahead or I will find someone that will. Well, they set up several problems and it's meant to to be very much a titanic situation and if you know about the titanic which now there was a major motion picture about it so everybody knows you know um but uh you know the there were several issues with the titanic and most of them were just hubris of a company being like well we built this to be unsinkable you know but in poseidon adventure this ocean liner is about to be retired. This is one of its last voyages. Yeah, they 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 say that very early in the in the in the movie. Uh, Leslie, Nielsen, Leslie Nielsen says, "I'm not going to risk this ship on its final voyage." 
yeah so the problem is is that it is top heavy because they were not allowed to fill the ballast tanks which keep the ship stable um by filling the bottom of the boat with water um or you know some some other stuff but usually it's water um so before they left port they were not able to fill the ballast tanks so when they left in new york they're on their way to uh greece athens i think and they say at the beginning of the movie that they did not let them fill the ballast tanks properly so as a result the ship is top heavy and it's causing at the beginning of the movie they run into a rough patch of ocean in a storm and it's causing the boat to sway more than it would normally and it's making all of the passengers seasick and the captain leslie nielsen says to the guy that's representing the owners we need to slow down and you need to let me take on water and fill the ballast tanks properly because we are swaying too much and it's really good in the way they film it because they are filming it with unstable cameras they are swinging the cameras so that as the audience you are also getting seasick and a lot of dutch angles in this movie. yeah a lot of dutch angles and the cameras move back and forth and they are swinging it to show that the ship is moving way more than it should even when the weather calms they keep that going because they have never been able to slow down and take on the right amount of ballast. Um, and, and it also gives that eerie sense of foreboding, like craft's about to go down. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Yeah. The captain keeps saying, you've got to let me slow the ship down. This is way too dangerous. And the owner representative guy keeps saying no you're you gotta we've got a schedule to keep we've got people to to get where they're going it's too expensive to slow down keep going full speed and leslie nielsen says no i'm gonna do it anyway and the guy says read your contract i will remove you there's three other people on this ship that have the credentials to run this boat i'll just put one of them in charge yay capitalism yay capitalism um and so that's that's what's going on there is he's like no screw you i'll i'll just remove you from power and one of these other guys would love to have a bump in pay and take over the ship so leslie nielsen's like all right screw it at least i'll try to minimize the damage and stay in control of the ship and so he's he's trying to do what he can and he's trying to to fill the tanks as much as he can while they're still moving but 
it's it's not working. And it's a nice it's a nice uh, introduction for Robin, our kid character, who is obsessed with water and boats. And apparently, uh, he, it, we never see it other than the opening scene with the captain. But he says, well, that he's been making friends with various workers on the ship. So he now knows everything there is to know about the ship because he's just obsessed with the ship. Yeah, and uh, we see him running around during the storm at the beginning of the ship and talking about how he's uh, been getting tours from the chief engineer and all that kind of stuff. Because he's a kid, he's curious, he wants to see how the ship works, which works in his favor throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah. The thing is, is that we go around the ship and we get introduced to the rest of the characters. Um, yeah, Reverend Scott, who is a very, very different preacher. We have two pastors on, on the ship. One of them is Gene Hackman. And Gene Hackman is a very God only helps those who help themselves kind of new age preacher, I guess you can say. If you want something, you got to fight for it. If you want success, you have to work for it. Well, you have the other preacher who is just, hey, just, just pray for it and it'll come. God will give it to you. Well, this is something that I kind of want to point out because it's going to be really important for the rest of the, the film. And it's going to be something that I want to point out from the original book as we get into this. Remember how I was talking in the, the Omen about where the origins of that film came from? Mm. And the um, the thread of religiosity that was going through the U.S. in the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, the same sort of thing is going on in this film. In that the Gene Hackman character is representative of the sort of new strain of a particular type of Protestantism that was showing up in the U.S. at the time. And it's still kind of here. <laughs> and it's still kind of here, yes. Um, that was counter to the other minister that we see in the film, which was more the kind of international version for lack of a way to put it american christianity yeah it's the it's the um, american version of christianity that was showing up at that point in time versus the sort of traditionalist um version that was the more prevalent strain uh so his very individualist you know, hard work and and all that kind of stuff that he that uh, Gene Hackman is is doing, and then you see the other uh, the other minister that's very uh, no, we need to stay together as a group. We need to help each other. We need to uh, work on our faith and prayer and trust and belief are the the two kind of opposing viewpoints 
and the fact that the older pastor's viewpoint is what gets most of the people on the ship killed. Uh, we're going to talk about that as we as we get on, because that that's that's a bit of a, a bit of a change there. I'm going to talk about the book in, in in a minute. Stay tuned. Spoilers for a 40 year old movie. <laughs> well, well, spoiler. Yeah, spoil, it's spoilers for an even older book, actually. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, uh, but there, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a. This book has a, the book and the film have interesting political uh, ties to what was going on in America at the time, which is kind of fascinating to me um but yeah so we go around the ship we see the we see the minister and his thing but we also see just like we talked about in the omen we've got this jewish couple um who are played by shelly winters and jack albertson who yeah. are making their trip to the holy land to see their grandson who has now two two years old and they've never seen him uh, in person, they've seen pictures of him, but they've never seen their grandson. FaceTime so didn't, didn't exist then. Yeah, they're 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 going to Israel. Uh, they're retired from their hardware store in New York, and they're they're going to Israel to have some time in the Holy Land and mostly to meet their grandson. So it seems that. Their son or daughter moved to Israel when the state was set up and got settled there, obviously, and, and you know, and settled there. And, and uh, they are now going to to see their their grandchild. I like that the joke of uh, of Jack Albertson trying saying, hey, we can go see this. We can basically marking all the touristy stuff in, in Israel and Shelly Winters it says, I don't care about that. I just want to see my grandson. <laughs> yeah. Um we we see the uh Robin Susan, the bickering brother and sister who are going to meet their parents who are stationed out there. Well oh, we they're what... they're on vacation in, in Greece. Which is what we're told about. Interestingly, in the book, the parents are with them, but for some reason, they are they are absent in the in the film version. I'm guessing that they don't want to end up orphaning children in this movie. Uh, yeah, which is also not what happens in the book. <laughs> um, the uh, yeah, uh, slightly more tragic. <laughs> Uh, end for some of the characters in the book um but yeah so so susan and her brother robin um susan has a crush on on gene hackman um I'm, we're I'm, never told exactly how old susan is supposed to be somewhere in her older teens maybe definitely under 18 yeah probably I would guess. But younger child having a some sort of crush on older man trope. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but you know, it's it's slightly weird. Um at least at least we never see the minister reciprocate, which is good. 
But he doesn't actually push her away. Well, but we don't actually... He seems very kind of paternal towards her. Mm-hmm. I don't think he... I, I don't... I When I watch this movie, I don't actually see him treat her as anything other than a child. I mean, because they do see Gene Hackman with two women right during the party. Yeah. So um, he, he, his dance card is full for the evening. Yeah, and when when he when he leaves with the group, like she keeps, you know, going over to him for, you know, like, oh, hold me and everything. But whenever he like hugs her or comforts her, it always seems like they're there, child. You know, you're fine. I will take care of you in a very like paternal uncle sort of thing. But I I never get the fact that at any point in the movie he's like. And when we get out of here, we will be married. And, you know, like, yeah, I, I yeah. never get that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you did, but I I never I never it's, get a creepy it's, it's, feeling it's, from him. It's clearly a one sided relationship. Yeah, she she very much has googly eyes for him. You know, it's like very, you know, you can see her with with like, you know, she's like, oh, He's so wonderful and all. But when he looks at her, I think he just thinks, like, this is a child I must protect. Nice um, kid. She's a nice yeah. kid. She's she's a nice kid. You know, I, I should I should make sure she gets out of this alive and her and her brother can go see their parents, you know. Um, uh, we also get Ernest Borgnine's character with, uh, with Stella Stevens, the cop and the former escort. Yeah, he talks about the fact that he kept uh, arresting her to keep Get her close. off the streets until she would agree to marry him, which is possibly the creepiest relationship in the film. I mean, he's clearly one of her clients, and he wanted a more stable relationship, and she agreed to it. And they clearly do care for each other, but they're also bickering married couple trope i mean he uh used his position of power to get a seat at the captain's table no i'm saying he used his position of power over her to make her marry him and then he treats her like crap throughout the movie yeah it's not a good relationship uh, the, there's the scene where she's seasick and they're trying to give her medication, but she can't take any, she can't drink anything. And I'm just, I don't know what about you, but to me, I get the Futurama quote, good news, it's a suppository. Yeah, it's like, they, yeah, it's, it, he is, he is probably the worst character in the film because he. And just, he survives. Yeah, it's, you want to talk about just things that make you go, why? Yeah, so, uh, the, the cop and his wife are not, are, you know, they're, they're the bickering couple you have to, to, uh, deal with, uh, Mike and Linda. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we get uh, Red Buttons as uh, James, who is a bachelor and a haberdasher. 
He's very into health, which means he takes a lot of vitamins at dinner. <laughs> which uh, which he gets kind of teased for. Yeah, and uh, and then the the final member of the group ends up being the singer, Nani. Um, yeah, and uh, as they end up making their escape, they do end up uh, meeting up with Roddy McDowell, who is uh, Acres, one of the uh, members of the uh, the ship's crew, who yeah. I think is a a waiter or something. He's he's one of the crew members in the he ship. He knows enough about the ship to get him to where, at least that they have a chance to survive. Yeah. Um. But a- after after we get our initial setup of who all the characters are, most of the action starts uh, at the New Year's Eve, uh, party, which takes place in the big banquet hall, dining room, whatever. Which is still decorated leftover from Christmas, and uh, they're having the big party. And just before it's time to ring in uh, the new year, Leslie Nielsen gets called away because they've heard that there has been an earthquake off the coast of Crete. And it has caused a rare Atlantic tsunami. And the uh, the wave is uh, approaching. In the original novel, it was a far more interesting uh, kind of uh, disaster that happened to them, which was they were over the earthquake when it happened. And when the earthquake happened, it opened up the fault line and that caused the water to fall into the sudden opening in the fault line. And that caused the uh, ocean to suddenly have a void in it directly under the ship. And that caused the ship to fall into the void. And when it hit, the water and the water rushed back in. It caused the the capsize. Mm. Um, but I suppose they thought that would be too expensive to show on screen, probably <laughs> rather than just stock footage of a giant wave. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean they they did remake this movie a few more times. They probably did it better then. Um, so uh, it's also slightly uh less believable um it's more sudden and dramatic i guess in in a book but um it's it's more tense and on screen um I, i really like the way this is done in the film honestly uh and so we get the tension of Leslie Nielsen getting called away, him trying to figure out if there's any way they can dodge the wave, him knowing that there isn't, him wondering if there's enough ballast in the tanks, him realizing there probably isn't, him kind of looking around at the crew on the bridge and 
realizing that they're probably about to be, you know. Yeah. I I mean, it's a really kind of sad, intense moment as, like, you realize that the captain is is realizing, like, this is about to be really bad. (laughs) Um, Well, at at least a representative of the owners, uh, you know. Are still there. <laughs> yeah, I mean the uh, the own the representative of the owner is uh, you know t- t- dies too. <laughs> um, they have just enough time to get a mayday out that something bad is about to happen, which and is... and turn on the uh, alarm so everyone in at the party can know. Hey, brace yourselves. Yeah. Um. Which probably initially saves a few lives. Um, but. Um, they do get hit by the the wave, and of course it it capsizes the ship. And honestly, that scene of the dining room turning upside down is pretty good for what they were working with. A lot of it is camera tricks, but it works really well. Yeah, it's the and, old it's the old Star Trek of we're flipping over, so lean to the right, lean to the left. Yeah, we're turning the camera. We're do- yeah. but there there are a couple of really good stunts. Um, there is one scene where you know a guy falls directly into the glass, you know, ceiling, uh, light fixture, hmm. uh, from what used to be the floor of the ship. You know, um. And that's always one of the scenes that you remember, you know, if you've ever seen this movie, you know, that guy uh, plunging to his death from, you know, the people getting, you know, smacked by the grand piano is always a rather brutal scene and and everything. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, there, there are, but... Once everybody's kind of, you know, figuring out what's going on, you have the the fight between, I mean, the ideological fight between the two groups of survivors, which are led by Reverend Scott and the purser. Yeah, the purser says, "Stay here. Help will come. If we if we all stay here, they'll find us. We'll get out of here." But uh, uh, actually, it's it's a uh, red buttons character that says, "Hey, if the ship's upside down, shouldn't we go to the bottom of the boat and get out that way?" To yeah. Which, to which Gene Hackman says, "You know what? Yeah, you're right. We we need." To get out, since the water is coming from below, we need to go up, aka down, to the bottom of the boat, and we'll get out. We can get out that way. But it's Ernest Borgnine who goes, Well, that's a ridiculous idea because the hull is three inches of steel. And it's the, uh, the little kid, Robin, that says, Well, actually, if you go to the stern of the ship, by the propeller, it's only one inch of steel at that point. And 
it would be easier for them to rescue us there. As we stated, Robin has been hanging out with all of the crew and knows the entire ship. So. And that's the hunch they're going on. Yeah. So. Scott. Tries to. Uh, they see. Uh, they see Roddy McDowell, who is trapped up. On Where a the kitchen would be, yeah. Ledge next to the kitchen. Well, what's now become a ledge because everything's upside down. And he's slightly injured, but not too bad. And he says, Hey, can you help me down? And they're like, No, no, no. Can you help us climb up? And they rig the uh the Christmas tree. The Christmas a tree, which is made out of metal. Um because, you know, it's a ship and you know. Real it trees, had previously yeah. been affixed to the floor, but it came loose in all of the kerfuffle. And they tie it up there. Um, and they're like, well, all right, metal, metal frame. We can use it as a ladder to climb up. And Scott tries to tell everybody, you know, hey, let's let's get out this way. And most of the survivors are like, no, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to listen to the purser who knows what to do in these situations. He has been trained for this. You're just some random dude. And the purser says, stay here. He's the expert. You're, you're a, a random dude. <laughs> you know, like, and why would we listen to you? And so we have our small group of all of the main characters in the movie climbing the Christmas tree, getting to the now upside down kitchen and everyone else staying with the purser. And then the wall breaks and they're all drowned in the flooding water. Well, yeah, yeah, there is a, a bunch of explosions that mm -hmm. kind of cause that that flooding. Um and people start panicking and trying to climb the tree. And the scene of all of these people desperately trying to climb this Christmas tree as the tree gives way to under all of that weight. Yeah. And, and just crashes Scott, into that water. Yeah. Scott he tries to tell them like, hey, no, no, no. Calm down. If you do it one at a time, it'll hold. And they're not, you listening know, there's and... enough time if you, you know, and. It is kind of a really effective scene because you hear they've put in the sounds of screaming in the background like, oh, God, I'm going under. No, don't grab hold of me. No, you know. And the, the, the image of, I mean, I don't know if you noticed it, but I noticed just people ripping people off of the Christmas tree so they can try and climb. Yeah, no, it's, it, it immediately becomes a panic situation of other yeah. people pushing people under to try to get over them to. Yeah, and Scott is trying to hold on to the tree and it uh, gives way. Yeah, and... bless him for trying. At least he's trying. Well, the know. thing is, is as soon as the tree goes down, he steps back and he closes the door. In there's nothing more he can do at watching. You know, yeah, there's nothing more he can do at that point. Um, and so he he kind of leaves them to their fate, and. Uh, starts to lead his his group through the the kitchen, which is on fire. 
he he finds a way through and he tells them like you know it's full of bodies it's not gonna be gonna be pretty not gonna be pretty but you know we've got to go through this way um shelly winters and uh the singer are both freaked out and have trouble getting through a lot of fat jokes at the expense of shelly winters and the thing is is that this is one of those those things of um it is bad but it is also part of the character that they that they do that i mean the payoff at the end works yeah the the payoff for it it does work and it's one of my favorite payoffs i guess Um, we can go to it since we're already mentioning it so we find out later on there is this area that is completely submerged and shelly winters says i was a champion swimmer i can make i can make the dive give me they have a rope they're going to use this rope as a guided tool through the under through the underwater part to the other side, and they say, "No, you're you're old, you're you're fat, you're not going to be able to make it." And you find out that she, for most of her life, she even says, "I may recently be fat, but that doesn't mean that I wasn't an athlete before." And you find out that her her weight gain you know whatever is going on with her body is a very recent thing for her age Um, illness we don't know yeah we have no idea what caused her weight gain nor does it particularly matter no um but she she tells them um, cause Gene Hackman is, you know, as the leader of the group is like, no, 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 I, I think I can, I think I can hold my breath for a few seconds as I, you know, and she, <laughs> tells the, she tells the group, look, he's going to be swimming down there through basically a maze of compartments and upstairs and, you know, under things and around things. He's not trained for that. I am basically saying that, yes, if you're in just a swimming pool or whatever, or a normal bit of ocean, and you try to hold your breath for 30 seconds and swim in a straight line, most healthy people can do that. But she was trained to swim around obstacles and up and down things and everything she was a competitive swimmer that was trained to do difficult things underwater and what do they do they don't listen to her all the men go oh that's nice sweetie sit down fat old lady her husband as well, but it's more of, hey, I'm not going to risk the, the life of her. Well, her, yeah, her husband is just more worried for her safety, not her competence. Because once she actually goes in the water, her husband actually stands up for her and he's like, no, 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 she can do this. She knows what she's doing. Yeah, she she absolutely knows what she's doing. It's just he doesn't want to. He's like, hey, look, if there's something dangerous down there, let the dumb 
guy go down there. Let the young <laughs> guy die, I'm, not you. Yeah, let let the other guy die. I'm I'm okay with that. Um so that was that was her husband's point at the beginning. Not that you can't do that, but if there's something dangerous down there, let the other guy risk his life. But uh, the other men in the group, the you know Gene Hackman and Ernest Borgnine, are immediately like, "Yeah, okay, honey, sit down, shut up, and let the men do things." Um, and it almost cost Gene Hackman his life at that point. Yeah, because a piece of debris falls on him and he almost drowns. Yeah, um, and. She she ends up going down down there, and once she pulls his dumbass out of the water <laughs> and gets him safely to the other side, her response to him is, "See, in the water, I'm very skinny." <laughs> That's a badass line, right? Which there. is one of the greatest lines in movie history, honestly. Um, it's a hell of a payoff. Yeah, and it's a great payoff of all of this entire movie they've been making fun of her for her weight. And, you know, the the little kid, he even apologizes to her, but at one point they're, they're um, pulling her up a ramp and the little kid says, oh, don't worry, I helped my dad bring in a 600-pound swordfish once. <laughs> and then the kid, a few minutes later, apologizes to her saying, I didn't mean to suggest that you weigh as much as a 600-pound swordfish. You know, like, I'm, Kid, I'm there's more important was... things going on right now. Like, yeah, Shelley Winter said, there's more important things going, around, going on right now, kid. But then she immediately says, you're a good kid. Because he's <laughs> the only person that apologizes for his kind of fatphobic remarks the entire movie. Yeah. Is that that kid is the only person that's actually worried about her her feelings the entire film enough to apologize for for what he says the jokes he makes but you know the fact that that Shelley Winters gets that that one that one bit of like excuse me no I actually do know what what I'm doing here thanks you know what's that phrase that you, you that you always use no one listens to Cassandra yeah, I mean, well, it's 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 just the fact that she has a skill. She stated that she had a skill. And if any of the men in the group had stated, hey, I was a competitive champion swimmer, immediately no Gene Hackman would have been like, well, here's the rope, dude. Go and be a competitive swimmer. She was even carrying a medal around her neck from her competitive swimming days. And showed it to him. She had proof of her achievements with her. I think it was a combination of, you know, Gene Hackman's one, a fat woman, and two, old woman. And he wasn't going to risk that. But the fact is that she showed that she could do it. And she did do it and saved his ass. Unfortunately, age caught up to her right then and there. Yeah, which, honestly, that that is my one beef with the film. We, you know, we're just kind of skipping around, but there, there is, there, we lose a few people from the group over the course of the, the trek through the ship. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the first member of the group that we kind of lose is, 
Roddy McDowell. And honestly, the reason we lose him is more for plotline reasons. We have to go like, oh no, who will guide us through the ship now? We have lost our ship guide, you know? Because hmm. he's he's the one who, honestly, he's the red shirt of the, of the group, you know? He's the one we meet last of all the people. We yeah, don't... He's already injured when we meet him. Yeah, he's he's injured when we meet him. He's the one that we don't know any backstory on. He's just the waiter that appears right before the disaster happens, you know? Um, and uh, we lose him at the point we do in the movie because now we have to be like, oh no, who will tell us where to go? Um, and it adds some stress to the situation of now we're not quite sure whether to take a left or a right here. At least there is a shining moment for Ernest Borgnine as he actually makes the attempt to save him. Yeah, it's kind of the one good thing Ernest Borgnine does in the movie is he does dive into the water to to try to save uh, Roddy McDowell at that point. Um, but, so at least when when Akers dies at that point, it's for a storyline purpose. You can see why that character had to die at that particular moment. But most of the other deaths in the in the group do not really feel that way. A death, and, they're more death for the sake of death. And they are and they are both women. So yeah, we get the first one. Okay, obviously Shelley Winter's character after after swimming through and having her badass moment, she has a heart attack because she's an old woman. Which, you know, other than the fact that she seems a little winded at certain points, which they all kind of do, mm -hmm. there's not much lead up to that. It, it's one of those things that it's like, well... It's it's fine, but um, it happens at a different point in the in the film. I mean, in the in the book, um, where the group they kind of make it to the to the propeller shaft, and they're waiting and waiting. And their oxygen starts to run out. Mm. And her heart gives out just before they are rescued because of the thin oxygen. At least this and it's way the, she gets the, the kind of final tragedy. Yeah. I, that she was like right there so close and minutes before her rescue, you know. So it's kind of here in the the fact of like haha i i saved you oh my heart you know it's like i don't know it's it's such a weird moment and i can't decide whether i i like it or not you know 
I, I, I like it. At least I like because she she gets to have the badass moment by saving Gene Hackman. But... Well, she has that same moment in the book. Hmm. You know, she gets to have her, and then she like completes the rest of the journey, mm-hmm. and it's just like the the lack of oxygen gets her. You know, right at the end. Uh, and then our, our other death, Stella Stevens. One more explosion as they're right at the end, and she loses her footing and falls into the fire. Yeah, and it's just there to give Ernest Borgnine a reason to be like, you why did her. I ever listen to you? You're awful and horrible. So him and Gene Hackman can have a... A final argument, a final yeah. face-off. And honestly, it just feels like the death of both of those women are there just so that the men they're with can have a moment. So fridging. Yeah, it kind of does. And and at, at no point does the opposite happen. At no point does a man die so that the woman can be like... and. No, I must go. I mean, unless you count the brother of the the singer. singer yeah. But really, that's only there so that she can be a prize for the one guy that doesn't have a woman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because as soon as as soon as uh, Carol Lindley's brother dies, Red Buttons is right there. Hey, I'll take care of you. I'll get out of here. You need. And then they have the conversation later. Maybe you just need someone new to care about you. And I'm going to get you out of here. We're going to get out of this together. I'm not leaving without you. And the thing is, he's a nice guy and everything. But the. You know, she the situation just, makes it bad. Yeah, it just it's kind of like she becomes the little trauma waif so that he can be like. You know, he starts out as like the. The sad little haberdasher that everybody makes fun of. And by the end of it, he's like, no, you can't swim. That's fine. I'll carry you through and swim for you. And, you know, it's like he has to man up by the end of the, you know. Yeah. Which is kind of like, I mean, does he really? He was fine the way he was, you know. He was just, he was dedicated to his job and never got to marry. Yeah. Yeah. Which the movie says is somehow bad. Yeah. But the thing is, is that as they're, as they're going through all of these obstacles, they meet another group of survivors, a very large group of survivors, mm-hmm. who is being led by the ship's doctor. And the doctor says, we're headed toward the bow. And we're going to wait there for rescue. And Gene Hangman says, no, you're an idiot. How dare you lead them that way? You will lead them all to their doom. Come follow me. I am the only one who knows how to. And everybody in the group goes, no, that's the ship's doctor. He knows the ship. He is the expert. You're just some guy. Why would we follow you? And that, I mean, so that's two instances in this movie of people who are the experts in their fields, like experts on the ship who 
cause several people to die, and the guy that's just a regular guy is saving the day. Yeah. So, uh, and even Ernest Borgnon is like, no, we should go with the doctor. He knows what he's talking about. Why are we following you? You're just some dude that my wife wanted to follow. Like, why? Why are we listening to you? Let's go with the expert. Um, but the group goes with Gene Hagman and they head toward the, you know, bow of the ship. Just as, yeah, just as I mean, that, towards the stern. Uh, just as the bow is flooding. Uh, yeah. So the thing is, though, is that they, they finally, you know, they go through all of these obstacles, you know, we, we lose these people along the way and they finally get there. There's the one last explosion. Poor Linda loses her grip and falls into the fire. She didn't deserve that. She didn't deserve to be with Ernest Borgnine. Poor thing. Ernest Borgnine is standing there screaming at Gene Hangman. Why did we follow you? You're just some dude. We could have been going anywhere else, but we had to follow some random dude. And all of a sudden, the little kid goes, Oh no, look! The steam pipe has broken! It is blocking our way! And all because they have to turn this this handle and now a steam pipe is blowing boiling hot steam onto this handle that they need to open to get to where they need to get to. And Gene Hackman absolutely loses his mind in one of the greatest speeches in film history. He is yelling at God. Yeah, he is absolutely cursing God at this point. The preacher um, is cursing God. How many more lives? How many more obstacles? How many are enough for you? Well, why, it, why did you take them? Why didn't you take me? Well, the thing is, is that this this is the thing is that he says some really interesting stuff here. We've come all this way, no thanks to you. We did it on our own, no help from you. We didn't ask you to fight for us, but damn it, don't fight against us. Leave us alone. How many more sacrifices? How much more blood? How many more lives? Bell wasn't enough. Acres wasn't enough. Now this girl, you want another life? Then take me it's a badass line i'm not gonna i'm not gonna i'm not gonna lie about it but the interesting thing is is that is this a loss of faith or is this a finding of faith that's the one thing i can't figure out well the interesting thing is is that he never really invokes god at any point in the movie between leaving the dining room and this moment. Yeah, there's no praying to God to save us. It's like, well, if we're going to get out of here, we got to get out of here. Which, and he's right. He, they never, he never once prays to God, hey, hey get us out of here. We'll get, us, we'll get ourselves out of here. Or he never tells anybody in the group to have faith or to trust or to 
you know? Because that's not going to help the situation. I mean, it might lighten some spirits, but it's not going to get them moving. He ain't wrong, but at the same time, eh, I'm not sure how I feel about that whole thing, you know? Which is an interesting and possibly accidental commentary on the sort of man he is a copy of, you know? Uh, is, is all I'm going to say. Um, but, you know, he he jumps and he he gets to the valve to turn off the steam. His arm's burning from the steam. Yeah, but there's no way for him to get back. I mean, once he makes that jump, there is no way for him to jump back to the catwalk. It's a one-way trip. Yeah. So he tells Ernest Borgnine, you know, lead the group, you get them to safety, and he lets go and falls into this... Into the fire. Yeah, pool of water that has oil floating on it that has burst into flames. And a charred Stella Stevens in it. (laughs) Well, no, she's in the other fire on the other (laughs) side of the catwalk. Um, cause you could see her body. She landed like kathunk on metal that was on fire. She didn't even land in the water. So if it wasn't the fire that killed her, it was definitely the fall that did. Yeah, no, I'm, I think she was, she was dead from the fall there, which I think was very fortunate considering the rest of it was just fire. Um, but yeah, um. Susan, poor, poor Susan just loses her mind and she wants to go in after him, but they have to pull her back. Um, and uh, Red Buttons tells Ernest Borgnine, like, hey, hey, you gotta pull it together here. He told you lead us, so lead, lead us. us. Um, and Ernest Borgnine pulls it together and, and leads them through the final door and up to, to where the metal is thinnest. And he's like, well, what now? And then they hear voices on the other side. Yeah, the rescue team has finally arrived. So they make noise. They start banging on pipes. They bang on the ce- on the floor ce- ceiling of the, sh- of the ship, making as much noise as they can. And at first, nothing happens. So they make more noise, louder noise. And they get the knock back. And they knock back, and they get a knock back, and so on and so forth, until they start hearing the the plasma cutter cutting the hole in the hull, and they're free. This entire this whole nightmare is over from what they lost. So this is the most interesting thing to me. They ask. The rescuers, once they finally see the survivors, say, how many of you are there? The rest, the survivors say, there are six of us. And the survivors say, did you rescue anybody else? Maybe from the bow. And they say, no, no one else. Those six people are the only people that survive the entire ship. And they 
get them out. They bring them through the hull. There's a helicopter there that has landed on the the hull, the upturned hull. Um, You see them get on the helicopter, and the helicopter flies away, and the movie very abruptly ends. Now, what I want to talk about is how the book ends. Right. Because the book has a very different and very interesting ending. The book ends fairly similar um, in the fact that um, a small group of survivors, it's a a bit larger group um, than is in the movie, because, you know, they were trying to save money here. But a small-ish group of survivors leaves the dining room and follows Reverend Scott. A larger group of survivors stays with the purser in the dining room and uh, they stay put and or go to the bow, that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, The group that goes with Scott Loses a lot of people along the way. They go through absolute hell trying to make it to the stern, to the propeller, to the one-inch thick hole. Okay. Basically the same premise. Slightly different bits along the way. Slightly different cast. Slightly different places where they have their deaths and all that kind of stuff. But... When the survivors are rescued from the stern by the propellers, they look back towards the bow of the ship and they see a much larger group being rescued from near the bow. And that group is still in their dinner jackets. They look very rested. They look like they've not been through near as much awfulness. Okay? So what you're saying is, in the book, all of these people went through hell for nothing. The book makes it very clear at many points that following Reverend Scott was absolutely the wrong choice. That the people who listened to the experts who knew the ship made the right choice. The people who listened to some dude who thought that he knew best absolutely suffered and or died for basically nothing. While and in the, movie. the ones, yeah, the ones that survived basically did so on luck. The movie version, though, turned it into boy, weren't they chumps that listened to the experts? Aren't you glad you listened to random dude who was full of American pluck and spirit? Glad you six people had the gumption and know-how 
to listen to the American dude what pulled himself up by his bootstraps and got you to the end through sacrifice and grit. Which is exactly the opposite message of the book. So none of these people had to die. <laughs> yeah, in, in the book, none of those people had to die or go through that. If they'd have just kind of stayed put and listened to the experts, they would have had a traumatic experience, but they would have probably survived. In the in the movie, it's the exact opposite. Like you know, hope hope you hope you had the the gumption and luck to get through, because nobody's coming to save you, buddy. You better be able to do it yourself. And so I a... find it fascinating that the that the book and the movie have exactly the opposite uh ideology and it's an ideology that still persists today how many over the last three years alone how many people have said those experts they don't know what they're talking about i know everything listen to me yep uh, and i mean it it really is uh fascinating um but it it is just um a really uh, interesting way that it was changed. Um, interestingly, the the man who wrote the novel, um, this was a massive departure for him in what he was known for um in his writing his more famous books before this um have one of them has just been made uh, into a movie called Mrs. Harris goes to Paris oh yeah um yeah that's that's just been now made into into uh, a big movie uh that has just come out uh right uh, you know like a month or two before we recorded this um so that was the kind of thing he wrote before he wrote Poseidon Adventure <laughs> so you can see how like what a massive departure that <laughs> this novel was uh from his previous work um, so imagine being like, oh, I'm going to read the new novel from that guy who wrote Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris and then getting this book. <laughs> After all of that, I guess all we can do now is to say, let's ask the question, Kiki, does the Poseidon Adventure 1972 version have the magic? I mean... I'm not sure if it ever really did. I I think a lot of those um I think a lot of those early critics kind of had the right of it. It's kind of it's fun to watch for the the disaster parts, you know, and it's fun to watch for the historical 
placement of it. And it's really good to watch for Shelly Winters, who is oh, yeah. just amazing. But it's kind of a schlock fest, you know? <laughs> this is, yeah, so you're going to. It's a fun schlock fest, but it's kind of a schlock fest. So is there, I, I don't know, is there like a like a mystery science theater magic ver- <laughs> version? Do we have that category? It's can our podcast. We have that we can be, category. It's our podcast. We can do whatever we want. It's a good bad movie. That's what, what you're saying. Yeah, it's a fun watch, but it's not a great film, you know. Because we've had bad movies that we've talked about that we just were bored out of our minds with. It's not a boring movie by no, any no. stretch of the imagination. No, it's not. But it's not. I mean, the plot is kind of thin. Yeah. And most of the characters are unlikable. Very one-dimensional. Yeah, I mean, you want to punch Gene Hackman, you really want to just shove Ernest Borgnine off... Into of, the fire. <laughs> yeah, off of something. Like, just shove him into the water before the disaster even starts. You're like, man, I want to throw this dude off the boat before we even get this thing going. The the little kid is okay, and Red Buttons is okay, and Shelly Winters is amazing, and Jack Albertson is nice. Everybody else you can just shove into the ocean. Uh, but it's a fun watch. I used to love this movie as a kid, you know, just because it's fun. Um, but you know, it's not it's not a great film as far as you know you can say i mean you could say magic in terms of it's just a bad movie that you like watching you know yeah but uh it again it it was the big movie of the year a lot of it because of the spectacle of it here are all these stars that you know here are all these special effects that look cool and but yeah, the story's pretty thin. The characters are one dimensional. The critics were right, but I didn't get feel bored watching this movie. But I'm going to say, if you like this movie, wonderful. I think that I'm going to agree with the critics that the spectacle of the special effects, the spectacle of all of these well known stars at the time really can't save how how thin this story is so i am going to say no magic but i did have fun watching it it's just i didn't see it as magical yeah but it's but it's an important film in in film history because while airport was probably the first modern disaster drama this is the movie that made the disaster film a thing it's still kind of a thing. Well, yeah, but I mean, this is the movie that like put it on the map. Like started, once Poseidon Adventure hit, you were like, "Oh yeah, this is a genre now." Yeah. So continuing our trek through seventies disaster movies, next week, the Towering Inferno. Can Irwin Allen do it again? We're going to come back and see. (laughs) 
So, yeah, come back next time for The Towering Inferno, the 1974 version. We'll talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. If you want to help the fight for human rights in the U.S., the American Civil Liberties Union works to protect constitutional rights for all Americans. Their website is aclu.org. If you need reproductive services in the U.S. or wish to donate to those who do, go to abortionfunds.org for more info. The battle isn't over until the last person surrenders. The fight continues. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it.